you'd please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians and the first chapter. As we continue our study in this book, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Let's hear the word of the Lord. I'm going to start reading in verse 15 of chapter 1. Read down to the end of the chapter. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. Who fills all in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Please go to prayer and pray for me as I preach this text. Lofty message that Paul gives to us in these few verses. And pray for yourselves that God would give you grace to hear and to understand. Let's pray. God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown to us in bringing us to faith. We thank you, O God, for your mercies that are upon us each moment. And we pray, O God, for your help as we come to your word now. I pray that you would help me, Lord, to preach what I prepared with clarity and unction of your spirit. I pray that you would cause your people to hear and to benefit. We would pray if any are here outside of faith that you would grant salvation, God of mercy and God of grace. We would pray as well that if any are here who are burdened down by loneliness or sadness, that you might, O oh God, lift them up according to your promises and your grace to us in Jesus. Help me, O oh Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Everyone likes to be recognized for a job well done. It comes in different ways. It can come simply with a word. A word of recognition and encouragement to someone. You did a good job with that. It may come with a bonus. It may come with a trip somewhere. But it is as recognition is given for a job well done. It's encouraging to continue on and labor and to be faithful in the job that you are doing. It makes us more conscientious. It makes us to be more faithful, and it gives us pride in our work in the good sense of the word. Well, Christ did an excellent job. Now, bear with me. Don't turn me off. He did an excellent job. And it is that the Lord Jesus Christ was rewarded for his work. We talked about that in Sunday school. People kind of took an offense at the word reward. You can't. You can't do it. 
because he was blessed because of his faithfulness. As we read the accounts of Jesus, the only way to make sense of these, and let me get in ahead of myself, is by understanding the incarnation of Christ. But Jesus was rewarded for his faithfulness. Well, the first thing we can talk about is he merited salvation for his people. Next thing we can talk about is he did all that God gave him to do. He was faithful to carry out the task that God gave him to do. He also was faithful to death. Humanly speaking, had Jesus remained in Galilee, he would have been safe. But as the Bible tells us in the book of Luke, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, where he knew, he knew without a doubt, certainty, he was going to die. And the death that Christ died in the first place physically was horribly painful. You ever whacked your thumb with a hammer? It'll wake you up. His was far worse than that. As nails were driven through his hands, as nails were driven through his feet, he was humiliated beyond imagination before they were nailed him to the cross of Calvary. Well, it was in bearing those sorrows that he redeemed the people to himself and was given the place of highest honor in all creation. And you say, well, wait a minute now. Isn't Jesus eternally God? Any one with the Father and the Spirit, all these things belong to him anyway, do they not? As I said, you have to understand the work of Christ. You have to understand the exaltation of Christ in connection with the incarnation. As he took flesh upon himself, as we read in the book of Philippians, he took on the form of a servant. He made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. So it is an understanding that Christ was truly man. He was truly God as well, but he was truly man, and he was limited. Listen to this. He was limited by his humanity. Could Jesus be more than one place at one time? No. Did he know all things in his human nature? No. Now, don't be confused and to think the Trinity was broken up became the Father and the Spirit and the Son wasn't there. Christ was always there. The second person of the Trinity never became absent. The triune God was always there as the second person took flesh upon himself, and Christ was limited by his own humanity. There's nothing wrong with that. It's simply the truth. And we see this this morning, that because Christ is superior and head of all things, All things we read in the scriptures. He is the supreme judge. He is the supreme God, if you will, redeemer. Then we can be confident that Christ is going to come again and receive us to himself as he sovereignly rules. There is nothing going, there is no thing at all that's going to destroy the church. The church is going to remain and be victorious because of our Savior. Three things this morning. Uh, The supremacy of Christ began with his resurrection. And the supremacy of Christ, it means he holds the highest place of authority in all creation. And the last thing, which we will not have time to look at it this morning. The supremacy of Christ means he sovereignly rules over all things. In the first place, then, the supremacy of Christ began with his resurrection. Christ, as he lived upon earth, was subjected to the effects of the fall. 
I'm sure he got sick at some point in his life. I'm sure he had a stomachache at some point in his life. We know that he got tired. We know that he got weary. We know that he had pain. He had the, he experienced the common human emotions, that of sorrow, as you know from being at the grave of Lazarus, where he cried at that grave of Lazarus, because his friend that he loved dearly had died. And again, I've told you before that the Greek there expresses upheavals of emotion on the part of Jesus. Not just a little tear falling down his cheek, but paroxysmal expressions of sorrow as he stood there at the grave of his friend. So Christ, as he lived upon the earth, was subjected to the effects of the fall. In the Bible also tells us that while Jesus was here, he experienced temptations to sin. We know from the Gospels that Christ was tempted by the devil three times as he was in the wilderness after being there for 40 days. Satan came to him. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. That's nothing for you. If you're the son of God, do that. And you can ease your hunger. No, I'm not going to do that. If you're the son of God, then jump off the pinnacle of the temple because the Bible says that uh, he won't let your foot be struck against the stone, that he will protect you. No, I'm not going to do that. If you will worship me, all these kingdoms that I reveal to you, I'll give them to you. I'm the prince of the world, right? And you won't have to go to the cross. You can skip that if you'll just simply worship me. What does Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you worship. He was tempted. And that was not the end of his temptations. We read in one of the Gospels that Satan left him for a more opportune time. He comes back, and he afflicts him. And I think you can see clearly Satan bothering him when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is praying so intensely that his sweat becomes like great drops of blood falling from him. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Three times he prayed, and he said this each time, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We have to, we must couch our prayers in that same expression. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It depends on how much we trust God to do that. It really does. I was talking to someone who used to be a member here. They decided to leave. And he said to me, he has trouble trusting God with his children. What are you going to do? You're going to outmaneuver God? We have to remember that God is a God of love and grace and mercy. And we have to trust Him with our children. What happened to the precious baby of the Smiths is absolutely heartbreaking. But God is still sovereign. And God is still good. Though we have those occasions when we simply can't make any sense at all out of the things that God's doing. What does God say to us again and again? Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? We have to trust him. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered again and again. And the sufferings that he had 
and the temptations and the trials demonstrated his true humanity and his commitment to be with his people. He knows the weakness of our flesh. Christ was born in human weakness, not human sinfulness, but human weakness. So he was born in weakness. He was raised in power and glory. He was born subject to death. He was raised unable to die ever again. And heaven, you see, is not a state of mind. I've heard people say such a foolish thing as that. It is a place. It's not a misty place, a kind of fog and whatnot. It's a physical place. There are at least two people in the Old Testament that we know are in heaven. Can you all name them? Enoch is one. Elijah is the other one. Enoch was taken. The Lord took him to heaven. Elijah went up, you know, on the chariot of fire to heaven. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 27, when it talks about Christ coming out of the grave, a lot of the saints rose as well. They went into the city and were seen by some. You imagine. I thought old Joe was dead. I saw him at the hardware store the other day, walking around. He did die. I was at his funeral. What a strange thing. It must be his twin or something. Nobody comes back from the dead. Those saints that were raised with Christ, I am confident they're in heaven. Why? Because it is appointed for man to die once. Not twice, but once. And they came out of the grave as Christ was glorified in their being. And then heaven is not only filled with those who have been translated to it. Heaven is also filled with the saints who have died and gone to heaven. Hebrews tells us the souls of men made perfect. There in glory are family members that you have had to die. There in glory are saints in history that were so faithful to the Lord. That's where they are. What a comfort to leave the graveside. Whether a child of believing parents or an infant or an adult and know they're with Christ. Not to be fretful and wondering if they're doing well. They're doing better than they ever have done in their life, in their existence. I know I told you one time, you've probably forgotten, maybe, I don't know. There was a man, I'm not going to tell you who he was. That's not the point, Woodrow. The point is he could not be comforted because he thought his wife was miserable in heaven. He couldn't figure out how he could be so unhappy. And she was happy. He knew better than to think that. He knew better entirely, uh, completely to think such a thing. He was well versed in the scriptures. He wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians. Yet he could not grasp how she could possibly be happy because he was just beside himself with sorrow and misery. As Christians, we are to grieve, but as Paul says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. He could not be comforted. Well, that's denying, really, uh, the glories of heaven to be in that particular state of being. Heaven is real. And that's exactly where Christ is at this moment. Well, as you notice, as we read through the end here of the book of Ephesians, where it talks about that uh, he has been elevated at the right hand of God, 
we see a different Jesus described here than the one described in the Gospels. In the Gospels, again, we see one who is tempted. We see one who is weak. According to the flesh, he gets tired, he gets hungry, he dies. Why the drastic change, as he talks about here, Paul does? Well, you know the reason. I hope you know the reason. Because of the resurrection. As Christ came out of that grave, an entirely different man. He came out glorified. He could not be tempted anymore. He could not get sick again. He could not die again. Glorified. The first fruits of those that sleep, we read in the scriptures. And we know from the rest of the Bible that the day will come if you're in Christ, where you likewise will be raised from the dead. God does not play games with people. You can't play games with God and win. You cannot put off coming to faith, thinking that, well, I'll do it tomorrow, or I'll do it next year. I just don't want to be bothered with it at this point in my life. You don't know that you have tomorrow. And there is going to be a judgment, and that judgment is going to condemn those who never came to faith. Hell is simply unimaginably horrible. Horrible. Is God present there? Yes, he is. The only aspect of God's presence there is his wrath. You remember Christ on the cross of Calvary? When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the Son of God to be in anguish like that, he was experiencing God's condemnation and wrath for sin. And those who are in hell now, it never goes away. The knowing conscience. How could I have been so stupid? How could I have been so foolish? How could I have traded eternity for the pleasures of this fleeting life? How could I possibly have done that? Well, here, our great God, our great Savior was raised from the dead. Revelation 1, 17 and 19. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. That's the power of our God. And the Apostle Paul, what he does here is lead us through the evolution of redemption. In the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Evolution is not necessarily a bad word. The evolution of redemption. The process of redemption. Where he talks about election. He talks about adoption. He talks about the actuality of redemption accomplished by the blood of Christ. He talks about the forgiveness of our sins. All of these things. And finally, he talks about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ being placed at the right hand of God. The highest place of power in all creation. Romans 1, 4 again. I would encourage you to memorize it if you haven't. He was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit, the resurrection of the dead. God's stamp of approval, God's word of guarantee, redemption has been accomplished. There's nothing else that needs to be done. All that needs to be done now is to express faith in Christ who has done the work. Suzanne, some of you remember Suzanne. She had a pastor named Philip Jones. I never met him. But he had sayings, apparently, that she remembered the rest of her life. He called Christianity the done religion. It's all been done. 
price has been paid. Christ did that. And we have the responsibility to embrace him by faith. Well, the spirit of Christ in the second place not only simply began his resurrection, but it's seen as his, his exalted state, which is what Paul is describing here in this text. He has seated him in the heavenly places. In the Greek, the word places is not there in the text. The word in the Greek there simply means for heaven above the sky, celestial and heavenly. What it means is Christ is in heaven. He is in heaven. That's what Paul is saying here. He is in heaven and he is seated in the highest place of honor in all creation. Because he won that as reward for his work. Don't come up and argue with me about the word reward after this service is over. Let me read something to you. The book of Hebrews. I have said before, if I was stuck on an island by myself, I'd want two books of the Bible. Well, three. Isaiah, the Gospel of John, and the book of Hebrews. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In his last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. All things were made through him and for him. We read in the book of Colossians. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is God's stamp of approval upon the work that the Lord Jesus Christ did. God, through Christ, has opened up the way for us to have a relationship with him. A good relationship. A relationship where he calls us his children. Where he loves us and protects us. The Lord Jesus Christ did that for all of us. and He is at the highest place of order in all creation. The right hand of God is a figure of speech, you know that. Why do I say that? God is non-corporeal. He doesn't have any hands. He doesn't have any feet. He doesn't have any eyes. He doesn't have any nose. He does not have a brain. Those are organs of the human body. But God sees. He hears. He thinks. He knows. He thinks and he knows. All things. All things without the use of a brain and eyes and ears. So this is a figure of speech, as we know God does not literally have a right hand. The writer points us, Paul does, to the uniqueness of the place of Christ in that high order of divinity as the Redeemer. In the book of Hebrews, he says in the opening chapter, to which of the angels did he ever say, you, you sit at my right hand? None of them. Christ holds this place uniquely that none others. Don't you get this? Don't you understand this? That it is a demonstration of the reality of your salvation. A redemption. That the Jesus who came into this world and lived a perfectly holy life and died for your sins upon the cross of Calvary it is that he is there ruling and your salvation is secure. So Paul wants to see this. It's amazing to me just how Christ is so 
magnificently displayed in the Scriptures. He's not just a friend. He's our God. He is the God that we worship, the God that we love, the God that we should desire in our lives more and more and more. And in this seat, he sits as one who intercedes for us. Christ completed his task successfully. God blessed him with being seated at his right hand. God accepted the work. We know that because Christ is at the right hand of God. And Christ gives us access to the God. 1 Timothy 2, through 2, and 2, 5. For there is but one mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. The man Christ Jesus. Not by works. Not by effort. By faith in Christ. And what a security that gives to us. Just think about this. What if your salvation depended upon you getting things right? How you lived? The success of your efforts? We'd all be in hell. Because ain't none of us, don't correct my grammar either, ain't none of us successful in being obedient all the time. We're not. We sin. I was talking to a piano player one time. We were discussing life. We were discussing thoughts that come into our minds. And he said, you know, something will come in. He said, where in the world did that come from? I can say the same thing. Where in the world did that come from? How in the world could that possibly be in my mind? Well, it's because I have a sin nature. And it's a powerful nature. It's a redeemed nature, yes. But nonetheless, one that is still sinful and one that still is given to sinning. The last thing then, actually two more things, is the kingly seat. Christ is the king. It is the seat of the judge. Do you know him? Do you love him? Are you trusting him for your salvation? It is then that we can close our eyes in death, go into the undiscovered country with confidence. I was talking to Winston this morning. I love the hymn, Be near when I'm dying, O show thy cross to me. As we go through that experience of a lifetime, our death. How do we do it bravely? By looking to Christ, the judge of all the earth, the great God and king, the God who is merciful and kind and gracious. Do you know him? Do you love him? The ministry, uh, to me, is a difficult calling. People think I work Monday a week, one hour a day. I get paid too much to do that. And I'm accountable to God for what I do. I don't say I get paid too much. You understand that? But I'd be a lot for one hour a week labor. I talked to my brother-in-law about it one time. If you confront people with their sin, they get mad at you. If you talk to people about worship attendance, they get mad at you. You preach and try to convince people to come less morally. They don't listen. You say something wrong that doesn't come out quite like it should, and they leave. 
if there was ever a calling where you recognize you were totally, entirely dependent upon Christ, it's the ministry. Who can change a heart but God? Who grants sanctification but God? It is a worthwhile gig. I'm saying it is a worthwhile gig. It's worth forsaking some things that God says you shouldn't have. It's worth being submissive to his providence. As we know that he knows better than we do. We are not wise in our own eyes. We look to God. I want to read something to you. And this is the end. In the book of Daniel, the night vision. I think I'd take Daniel too if I was isolated somewhere. Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. I love that name for God, the Ancient of Days. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what's in store for the Christian. The kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And the king of that kingdom is more gracious and loving and kind than any king that's ever ruled here in this world. He is the sovereign God. He makes his intercession for us always. And nothing at all can stop that kingdom from progressing. That's a worthwhile gig. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray.